Acts chapter 1. I'm going to reread the passage that we've been camped in for the last several weeks of our study. And um, I'll briefly catch us up in terms of where we've been, and then we'll, we'll head on with the further focus of the study today. Verse 9, Acts 1, 9. The focus here is, of course, on the Lord Jesus. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So this is, of course, the event um, identified theologically as the ascension. And we've spent uh, three studies so far in this section, and we've really expanded it beyond just the, the brief description here. We did do one study just focused on the wording of Acts 1, 9 through 11, and identified that as, Um, the ascension as described through the eyes of the disciples as they actually experienced it. But because they're, in a sense, in our shoes, I mean, they were there, we weren't, but connected to us and similar to us, their vision is limited. And all they could see was the Lord ascending from from this world up into the atmosphere, into a cloud, not a random cloud, the actual... Shekinah glory cloud of the Lord that is identified at super critically important moments throughout redemptive history. And as he entered into that cloud, he disappeared from their sight. And so their, their immediate perspective was limited by the boundary of the cloud. But then we've also spent two additional weeks, one in the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7 and the second one in our study last week in John's prophecy in Revelation chapter 5 and we've been focused on the ascension from the moment he disappeared into the cloud and beyond. So what happened from now heaven's perspective as he arrived back into heaven and entered the throne room and approached the throne of God and the one seated upon the throne described in Daniel as the Ancient of Days. And um, we saw in our study last time a, a critically important exchange taking place at the point of his approach to the throne. In the Revelation passage described, the Lord Jesus is described through two symbolic images. Um, there's a spiritual reality here, but He didn't physically transform into what John saw. He described seeing him as a lion, a triumphant lion, and as a lamb standing as though it had been slain, dead, but somehow amazingly, miraculously, wonderfully alive. And he receives from the one seated upon the throne, excuse me, a scroll written both on both sides of the scroll and sealed with seven seals. And as he receives the scroll, and the emphasis and the description in Revelation being, he and he alone, of all human beings who had ever lived up until that moment of history in this, equally applies to all human beings that have lived since that moment in history, he alone was qualified and capable and able to actually receive the scroll take hold of the scroll and then additionally break the seven seals that sealed the scroll and open it up and as he does and for the details of what's in the scroll in terms of my perspective uh, you know I'll just reference you to the study last week but as he does all of heaven then directs equal honor glory and worship to the lamb as it had previously in chapter four given only and exclusively to the Ancient of Days who was seated, excuse me, upon the throne. So that leaves us to our study today. And I think 
most likely next week. I'm <clears throat> sorry, I've got something caught in my throat here. I'll work through it. Um, I don't know for sure how far I'll get. I've got 12 things to focus on. And I know, <clears throat> I know I won't get through all 12 today. So the question is whether I can do six today and six in two weeks when we come back from home church or whether we do four, four, and four. I don't know. We'll just go as far as we can go today and see where that leads us. <coughs> I think I've actually got a little bit of communion uh, wafer cracker stuck in my throat. No, I've got water here. Thank you, though. Um, what we're going to focus on today and next time and possibly the time after, just depending on how far we get, is what are the, what are the reasons for the ascension? All three of our studies so far have just been the observation of the event itself. And then in, in the last two studies, we began to consider what happened as he returned to heaven and why was that so significant? Why was that so important? But more than the Daniel passage describes, and even more as, as much detail as in the Revelation 5 passage, more than those two passages describe, there are critically important, super important reasons behind the event. Significant things that are set into motion because the Lord Jesus arrives back into heaven. And there may be more than 12 reasons. I've just accumulated the ones that I'm personally aware of. And so this is my list. <clears throat> if it's uh, if something else besides these 12 uh, comes to your attention, uh, feel free to bring it to my attention and I'll add it to the list as well. But here they are, and as I said, we're just gonna, we're gonna start working through the list and we'll get as far as we can get today. All right, the very first reason why Jesus ascended, and these are not in order of importance, like number one is more important than the 11 that follow. I've just kind of arranged them thematically, not by way of, this is more important than the next, or the last more important than everything that preceded. The, the first reason why Jesus ascended back to heaven is a somewhat obvious reason, but the Lord himself focuses on this, calls this to his disciples' perspective, and so I see this as important in its own right. He ascended back to heaven in order to return to the Father. Let's look first at the Gospel of John, chapter 13. And we're going to look at, for each one of these reasons, at least a couple of passages for each one. And that's why I'm not sure how far we'll get, because uh, anytime we have multiple passages connected to 12 points, uh, that's when I get into trouble in terms of time. Um, John chapter 13, though. This is now the scene as the Last Supper the final night that the Lord Jesus spends with his disciples before going to the cross. And uh, this is the very beginning of John's account. John gives, of course, the, by far the most detailed account of the Last Supper. And um, I'm going to read from verse 1 of chapter 13. We'll just read the first three verses of the chapter. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Now this is of course leading to the uh, event where Jesus um, washes the feet of his disciples in order to train them in the true nature of agape love and service to one another in his family and his, what is going to develop into his church. Now, there's two points here, and they're simply described, but 
as I'm saying there, I think there's great significance to these simple descriptions. One is in verse one. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to depart out of this world. Uh, We all depart out of this world, all of us, every single one of us. There's no exceptions to that that, uh, biblical and spiritual rule in life that there's going to come an end to life. At the end of life, there is a departure out of this world. But our departure out of this world is somewhat different than his departure out of this world. He's not talking here. John is not talking in his description of Jesus departing out of this. He's not talking about Jesus' death on the cross. He's talking about what will follow his death on the cross. And in his departure out of this world, he finally left this world in the event that we've been focused on, the ascension. And he describes that his departure had a destination. So anytime you embark on a journey and departure is the beginning of a journey, uh, there is always going to be a destination at the end of the journey. His destination was not just heaven as a place, as a location, though it is real, it's an actual place, it is an actual spiritual location. Nevertheless, his destination is not described as heaven as a place. His, his destination is what? He will depart out of this world. The time had come for him, him to depart out of this world to the Father. Now, what's interesting to me about that is that, and, and uh, let me just read the second one and then I'll, I'll describe what's interesting to me. Verse three is the second mention of the same concept. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and, and by the way, that transfer of the Father giving all things into the hands of the Son, that's going to be in our study probably next week, but essentially a transfer of the authority over all things that takes place as he actually arrives back into heaven. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God, which tells us, of course, and this is is absolutely important for us to understand that Jesus wasn't born into this world as the beginning of his existence in the way that you and I are born into this world and that moment of our birth into this world is the moment of the beginning of our existence. Now, I'm not, by that, I'm not denying the reality that you existed in your mother's womb, but that's all part of what we're describing as the birth process. So from conception forward, we're talking about birth. He came into this world, but that was not the beginning of his existence. He existed prior to his birth. That's the concept of the incarnation. And prior to his birth into this world, where was he? He was with God the Father in heaven. And so in order to enter into this world, he got up off of the throne of God, laid aside the authority that comes with the throne, laid aside the external expression of his glory, and willingly volunteered to be born, incarnated into this world as a human being. But in order to do that, he had to come from God to this world. But John goes on to describe that he had come from God and was going back to God. Now what's interesting about, to me, the the verse one description, going to, he's going out of this world to the Father, and verse three, going back to God, is the consideration of the presence of God. Now, I think most of you here will already understand this, but it's an important distinction for us to keep in our minds at this point, and then to be able to distinguish what's the focus here in the description of being in the presence of God. So in one sense, and this is a true sense theologically, God is present where? Everywhere. We, we refer to it theologically as the omnipresence of the Lord. There is no physical or spiritual location anywhere in existence where God's presence is not evident and, and there already. Even hell itself, what we understand as hell. Now, he's there in a different way than he is in heaven. That's a a focus of a different study. 
But the point being that God is everywhere present. The, the scriptures from beginning to end emphasize that truth about God's presence. So if God is everywhere present, and he is, why is John emphasizing in his description of Jesus leaving this world to ascend back to his beginning point of his journey, which is in heaven? Why is it described as going to the Father and going back to God? Isn't God here in this world? Most certainly is. Wasn't God with Jesus when he was living his life and conducting his, his ministry assignment, his mission, you know, accomplishing his mission here in this world? Wasn't God with him throughout that process? We know that clearly Jesus himself declared that the Father who sent him had not left him and was always with him because he always did what was pleasing in the eyes of his father. So why the description of going back to the father, going back to God? Well, there is a second sense of God's presence that's, that's emphasized throughout scripture. And I think it's in this second sense that John is describing the return of the Lord to the father, to God. And that is, the scripture also describes beside the omnipresence of God, the scriptures describe what we call the manifest presence of God. So that, and, and the difficulty in our limited comprehension is understanding how both of these things can be true at the same time and how they, how they relate to each other. So in one sense, God is everywhere present at the same moment, at the same time, and really present. But in another sense, God chooses to make himself even more present in certain locations at certain times. For instance, when, it's just one example, when the children of Israel were rescued out of Egypt by the, the power and presence of the Lord, and they were led through the, the, the uh, parted Red Sea and into the wilderness, and they journeyed for 40 years throughout the wilderness. There was a phenomenon that accompanied them throughout their wilderness journey. What was that phenomenon? It was the, what is described as the pillar of cloud by day. That same pillar then became in their perception a pillar of fire at night. And inside that pillar of cloud and fire, there was a spiritual presence at all times. That spiritual presence is described as the angel of the Lord, and it's not technically an angel at all, a created being. The angel of the Lord is a, a spiritual personage, personage that we understand to be the Lord himself. So the Lord himself made himself evidently, manifestly present with the children of Israel in a way, to an extent, and to a degree that he was not present anywhere else on the face of the earth during that time period. But at the same time, he was everywhere else. Do you understand? Both things are happening. He's everywhere on the face of the earth at all times, and then in the wilderness journey, he was specially present with them to a greater extent, to a greater degree than he was with anyone else. The same principle is in evidence when the Lord Jesus incarnates. So as Jesus is incarnated, is Jesus during the years of his incarnation here on earth, is he personally everywhere present? The answer is no. He is only present in the location of his physical body for the duration of his time in this world. But God the Father, God the Holy Spirit is present everywhere while God the Son for those moments, for those years in history is present only there wherever his physical body happened to be located. Now why that's an important principle here in terms of understanding John 13, 1 and 3, the Lord returning out of this world to the Father Yes, the Father was present with him, but as he's returning to the Father, there is a reuniting of their relationship in the ultimate and fullest sense. And so what is 
indicated, what's implied is that Jesus was motivated. He was moved to return to the Father, not just in a, I've got to accomplish certain practical things, but out of a desire for restoration of the fullness of the relationship that they had enjoyed for all of the ages of eternity past and through all of history that led up to the moment of the incarnation. Now, there's another passage here in uh, the Gospel of John. Let's jump over a couple of chapters to 16. Jesus is still speaking. We're still in the event of the Last Supper. And in verse, chapter 16, verse 28, Jesus describes the story of his incarnation and ultimately ascension. Using those two events, incarnation and ascension, is kind of like bookends of his story. Beginning and conclusion. Not end, because his story continues beyond the ascension, but a conclusion of something. Verse 28. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And so again, returning to heaven in order to reconnect, to reunite in a relational sense, father to son, in a way that was not evident in his time here in this world. Okay, one last passage, John 17. We're still in the uh, Last Supper chapters, and now Jesus is praying, and the disciples are blessed to overhear this this prayer is one of the, actually the, the longest prayer of the Lord Jesus that's recorded for us in Scripture. And I'm just going to take a, sn- a snippet out of it. Uh, we're looking at verses 11 through 13. Jesus says to the Father, and, and I am no longer in the world. Now, at that moment that he's praying, he is in the world. But he's praying from the perspective of what we would experience and call faith, in that he's praying about something that hasn't happened yet as though it has already happened. He says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Speaking of his disciples, he's interceding for them. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, obviously a reference to Judas in his betrayal, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now this is a prayer that the Lord prays for the disciples that they would experience the same measure and the same quality of joy that he was experiencing. And that is a a, a wonderful thing because this is the concern of the Lord Jesus for us. He prays similarly for us in his intercession in heaven. But what I want to focus on out of this passage is why did he have this joy and what was this joy connected to? He says again, uh, we're reading in verse 13, but now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I believe that Jesus is very clearly implying that the joy that he is describing that he was experiencing was the joy of the anticipated reuniting with his heavenly father at the moment that he would return to heaven and enter into the throne room as we saw in our study last week. That moment where he approaches the throne and the fulfillment of the plan and purpose of why he came into this world is most fully revealed in heaven. And in that anticipation, he's looking at what is just about to have happen with a heart filled with the greatest possible joy that any human being 
can ever experience. So first and foremost, Jesus ascended and obviously all of these things that we're going to be, all of these 12 reasons we're, we're looking at in terms of why did Jesus ascend, they all have a, a trickle-down effect and benefit for us. Like this one about his joy, but now he's praying for the disciples that know him and follow him and are committed to him, receiving the same joy that he's personally experiencing. But what I really want to direct our attention to, and sometimes I think as believers, we get kind of caught in this pattern in looking at passages like this and, and concepts like this in scripture. And that is being in a hurry to find what does this mean for me and how does this apply to me? I think we should always, in our study of scripture, end up in our consideration of the principles that are revealed in God's word with a, a question of how does this apply to me and, and what does this mean for my life? We're always supposed to end with, a, with an application point of understanding for ourselves. But we're at the same time not meant to start our study there. Sometimes believers can read passages like this and jump to how this might apply but in that jump can miss the deeper application because they're not really considering what it meant for, in this case, him before considering what it means for me. I want you to capture how joyous the Lord Jesus was to return to his father. And then, yes, encompass and and. and and accept the, the beauty of him praying for his disciples, even as he is describing the joy that fills his heart in anticipation of returning to his father. And he prays, I want them to have this too. I want them to have that same joy in their hearts that I am, I am filled with in this very moment of anticipation. And also consider the context of this prayer. The context of the prayer is immediately before being arrested, immediately before being tortured, immediately before being crucified, and immediately before being killed. He knows all of that is coming his way, but he's looking beyond all of that, and he's looking at the joy. Now, there's a a passage that describes this concept that I'm trying to communicate Uh, Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and the witnesses that are being described in 12.1 are all of the, the great, what we call, rightly so, the heroes of the faith, that are listed out and briefly described for us in chapter 11. They now, at the end of their life in this world, at the end of their service, they're now functioning as a cloud of witnesses as they're watching the saints that are still alive in this world and still living out their assignment from the Lord. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The race here just being, as you know, an image of the Christian life in terms of what God has assigned us, the course that he's laid out in front of us to run. Verse two, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And then this line, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So the implication of that is how did Jesus endure all that he endured? And he endured a greater measure of suffering than any human being has ever endured in all of human history. And how did he how did he 
carry that? How did he experience that and live through that without being utterly crushed by it? He did so because his heart was focused on one thing. His heart was focused on the joy that was waiting for him at the end of the assignment. He was focused, even as he was going to the cross, on that moment that Jerry was re-describing for us during our communion exhortation this morning, where he arrives back into the throne room, as we saw in Revelation chapter 5, and the week before in Daniel chapter 7. So he arrives back into the throne room. In that moment, he is filled only with joy. No suffering, no sorrow, no regrets, no disappointments, filled only with joy knowing that the mission, the great assignment of accomplishing redemption and salvation for all that God intends to save has been accomplished. And now he's being reunited with his heavenly father in a way that only he knows how great and deep and wide that relationship actually is. All right, let's look at the second one. That's reason number one why Jesus ascended back to heaven. Reason number two, let's go to 1 Timothy chapter three. We're gonna look at a passage that is identified by most theologians as an early Christian worship song, an early Christian hymn. We don't have the actual tune here. We don't have the melody. We just have the lyrics, the, the actual words of their worship. Verse 16 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is completely off topic, but um, you know how John 3.16 is uh, you know, one of the most famous and probably the most famous verse from scripture in terms of most well-known. But there's lots and lots. It's just one of those interesting things to me. I don't know if it was planned out or, or how they managed to accomplish this as they, as they uh, wrote out the translations of God's word and then not just the translations, but the, the people that originally decided which, which uh, verse numbers to assign to which verses. Because you know the verse numbers weren't in the original scripture text, right? But um, there's lots and lots of 316 verses that are as awesome as John 316. This is one of them. First Timothy 316, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. Meaning we're looking at the, the person of Christ as he entered this world in order to accomplish the great mission of God and then how does that story conclude what's the grand finale of that story he was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the spirit seen by angels in a kind of a witness type uh, um, description here them witnessing the greatness of his accomplishment proclaimed among the nations and that's of course the emphasis on the great commission believed on in the world that's, that's our part. That's where we come in, in terms of this great story. And then finally, and ultimately, taken up in glory. Now, the taken up description is describing the moment of his ascension through again, the eyes, the perspective of the disciples that observed it. He was taken up by the cloud. And that cloud, we've already identified as the glory cloud, the Shekinah, the cloud of God's presence. But what I want you to understand in terms of this brief description, and we'll look at another passage that, that emphasizes this as well, is that as Jesus entered that cloud, that, that moment of him entering the Shekinah glory cloud was a transformative moment for him. And it changed him permanently forever and ever and ever for all the ages of eternity that will follow the examples of this i'll give you two there are more than these two in scripture but these two will i hope serve to help you understand the nature of the transformation i'm trying to describe you remember the story of the lord leading the children of israel out of egypt and as they 
as they crossed the Red Sea and as they entered into the wilderness, the very first location that the Lord led them to is he led them to a mountain. That mountain was later identified as Mount Sinai. And he caused the children of Israel to set up camps surrounding that mountain. And he called to Moses, the Lord did, from the pillar of fire and cloud, the Lord called to Moses and told him, come up to the summit of the mountain and meet me there. And as he called to Moses and Moses responded obediently and Moses, Moses hiked up Mount Sinai and arrived at the summit of the mountain. As he did, a cloud, the same cloud, the pillar of cloud and of fire, which is a, um, an image of God's glory and evidence in this world. It's not just a natural physical flame, but a glory fire, so to speak. That cloud then descended upon the summit of the mountain and covered the summit of the mountain. And Moses, it's described, entered into the cloud and he was there in the immediate and direct presence of the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. It's a miraculous visitation because we know, and and the scripture describes, He didn't eat any food for those 40 days and 40 nights and neither did he drink any water. And it's not even physically possible to last 40 days without food and water. Uh, Most likely the average human being without some kind of supernatural intervention which Moses clearly experienced would die at approximately what point along a 40 day timeline without food or water. I I don't care what, how wonderful the circumstance sets you in the most comfortable physical circumstance possible and withhold all food and all water from you how long until you die three four five days at most and you're you're going to die because we're just dependent upon those natural substances that we call food and water so Moses lasted for 40 days and 40 nights and the question we're meant to ask is how and the how is he was sustained directly and immediately by the glory of God He was living on glory rather than on food and water. But that 40-day time period came to an end and Moses exited the cloud. All the children of Israel saw was him entering the cloud and then he, he was lost from sight. Like the disciples seeing Jesus ascend into the cloud and being lost to their sight from that point forward. But Moses comes back out of the cloud 40 days later. But something's different about him. It's not just because he's taken a little bit of a rest from all of his heavy stress of leading the children of Israel. You know how it is if you've taken two or three days off from all of your responsibilities and you come back from a little mini vacation, you feel a little bit more well rested and you have kind of like a, uh, you know, a brighter look about you, Right? This is something far more than that. What had happened to Moses during those 40 days? He had apparently, like a sponge, soaked up a measure of God's glory from being in the immediate presence of the revelation of God's glory inside the cloud. So much so that his face is described as shining with the glory of God. And it's not just a mild shine. It was so bright that as he began to descend from the mountain and came close to the camp of Israel and the Israelites see him coming and they see his face shining, it's so bright that what do the Israel, Israelites cry out to Moses? Cover your face, you're blinding us. And that's a, a you know how it is, you, you you can look into the sun and you can only look into the sun for, and I'm not recommending that you do this, but you can only look into the sun for a moment. Or, or if, you're, if you want to take the risk, you might look into the sun for two moments. But before, before the third moment, you've got to look away or else you literally risk blinding yourself. And that's a natural physical light of the sun. The light that was shining from Moses' face was greater than. In fact, it's described elsewhere in Scripture as greater or more bright than the noonday sun. 
Now that for Moses was a temporary experience. It didn't last for the rest of his life. It was for him purposefully, spiritually, in terms of what God is revealing in comparison between old covenant and new covenant and the greatness or the extent, the degree of his glory revealed in the old versus the degree of his glory revealed in the new. That was for Moses a fading glory. And eventually it did fade away. The further timeline-wise that he got from the actual 40 days that he had spent on the mountaintop. But for those few days after he came down from the mountain, he literally had to cover his face with a veil in order for the Israelites to not be blinded by his glory. So in this brief description in 1 Timothy 3, 16, this last line of the early Christian hymn, He was taken up in glory. I believe that as Jesus entered the glory cloud, it was the beginning of what is described in our next passage as a restoration of the glory that he had laid aside in his incarnation. Let's look at John chapter 17. And I can see right now we're going to definitely be in the uh, the four at most category of our list i'm saying four we've got a total of 12 things and i was remember at the beginning i said we're either going to get six done today or maybe four or maybe yeah we're going to finish two i guarantee you that 17 this is back to the high priestly prayer back to the prayer that jesus prayed just before going to the cross verse one When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him. And again, Jesus is anticipating what is going to be given to him the moment he arrives back into heaven. You have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. That is, statement alone is worth camping on we won't we have to move on but the essence of it is saying that when jesus returned to heaven he was given authority over every human being in order to save certain human beings among every human being meaning he's in charge of who gets saved and who doesn't so he says in verse three And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is one of the highest level things that Jesus ever declared And interestingly, it's a declaration not to the disciples. They were blessed, and us through them listening in through their ears, they were blessed to listen to him praying these things. He's saying this to the Father. This is is business between God the Father and God the Son. Business that only the two of them would know about. Only the two of them would fully understand at that moment. But he's asking for a return a restoration of glory, but he's anticipating that the glory that he formerly enjoyed and he formerly possessed, which he chose voluntarily to lay aside in order to come to this world and be born and live as a human being. And why did he need to do that? Can you imagine if the full glory that he possessed, he carried with him in outward expression during his life in this world, he never would have been able to interact with anybody. At the very least, what would have happened is as soon as someone approached him, they would have been physically blinded, like the children of Israel crying out uh, to Moses. And beyond that, we know from another later interaction between the Lord and Moses that that glory is so strong and so powerful. It's not just a blinding glory, it's a destroying glory in terms of destroying anything that is incompatible with the holiness of God. It would have literally killed everybody that he interacted with in the world had he not laid his glory aside. And so he did, but now he's anticipating 
all of that being returned and restored to him. But in his prayer, he links that to his arrival back into the fullness of the presence of the Father. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. The manifest presence of the Father seated upon the throne in heaven in the Lord's return, receiving the fullness of the glory that he had laid aside. All right, one last passage on this point, Romans 8. And the reason I wanted to read this one is earlier I was, I was in a sense, de-emphasizing rushing to practical and personal application in order to get fully what it actually is describing. But I, I hope you heard that I was also trying to emphasize, but we need to end up with a point of personal and practical application. So I chose this one as an example of that. You know the passage, two of my favorite verses in all of God's word, verse 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The point of this passage is that our story ends in the same spiritual condition where his story concludes. It ends in glorification. But our glorification is dependent upon his. He returned to heaven in order to be glorified to guarantee and ensure that when we arrive in heaven, we will receive the same great blessing of being as glorified as the son himself is glorified. We will share in his glory in our arrival there. All right, next principle, John chapter 14. Next reason why Jesus ascended back to heaven. This is a, 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 a very well-known one, but one of the most commonly misunderstood passages anywhere in scripture. And I hope you have not misunderstood it this way, but if you have, I'll try to help you to understand as you should. John chapter 14, we're back in the Last Supper. Jesus just with, at this point, the 11 disciples. Judas has already left the room to, to go betray Jesus with the, the, uh, the corrupt Levitical priesthood in the temple. And Jesus says this to his disciples. Word of encouragement to them. Let not your hearts be troubled. The context is, and this is easily missed, and we won't go back and read it, but look at the last, just glance at the last few verses of chapter 13, verses 36 through 38. Jesus has just told Peter, you're going to blow it, and you're going to blow it big time before the night ends. And now, after, after boldly declaring to Peter how, how, uh, much he's going to blow it. He says the very next words out of his mouth, and I, I love this about the Lord. He's honest and he's direct with Peter, but then he immediately comes with a word of encouragement so that Peter is not crushed in the experience. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Now, um, Thomas struggles with that, and so Jesus has to take him through a, a brief uh, process of helping him to understand what he's missing. But our focus is on the words. I'm going to look at the words in verses 2 and three. Let me read just those two verses again. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, 
that where I am, you may be also. Third reason why Jesus ascended, and this one directly applies to us. It's all about us. The first two were all about Jesus. This one is all about us. Now, of course, it's about what he's doing for us, for our benefit, not just our temporary benefit. There are times where the Lord will pour out a temporary benefit on your life to serve a temporary purpose, to move you from one square to the next square in the progression of where he's taking you. But then there are other things that the Lord does for us that have permanent benefit forever and ever level benefit. And this is certainly one of those. Jesus ascended in order to prepare a place for us. Now, I've mentioned that this is one of the most commonly misunderstood passages in scripture. And a lot of it has to do with the, and my apologies to Bob on this one, but the specific wording in the King James Version translation. Uh, In the King James, it reads like this. Um, In my father's house are many mansions, many mansions. Now, um, if you and I were going just out to to view the current status of real estate in our community, and, you know, we were looking at different neighborhoods and different, different economic groupings of housing that were available, and we happened to look, like near my house, there's a, there's a hill, and on that hill are what I can only describe as mansions. They're, they're the kind of houses that I will never live in, in, in my life in this world. And um, why do we call mansions in this world by that name? What, what distinguishes a mansion from where I live? I live in a house. <laughs> It's a nice house. I'm not complaining. I, I, I love the house that I live in. I appreciate that the Lord blessed me with it. And it's, you know, it's more than enough for my needs in this world. But uh, it's not a mansion. No one would ever look at it and say it's a mansion except maybe, uh, maybe like one of my brothers in India that live in, you know, much, much uh, lower level housing or one of my brothers in, in Lodwar, Kenya uh, that live like the, the one pastor that I shared with you a few years ago that literally lives in a grass hut, a one-room grass hut um, with a single doorway cut out of the grass. And, uh, you know, I was blessed to go and visit his home and, you know, he invited me into the home and just to get into it, I had to, I had to almost get on my knees to crawl into it because of the, the low nature of the entry point. And I just, just, you know, it wasn't that big. So I, if I had gone in completely, I probably would have taken up the entire space. But I, you know, I just kind of got my head in and my shoulders and was looking around just so that I could kind of soak in the experience. Now, if he had come to visit my home, he might describe my house as a mansion. So there, it's a comparative term. But in our culture, what do we think of when we think of mansions? Huge, beautiful, rich, and for most of us, out of our pay grade, right? So this wording that was chosen by the King James translators to describe what Jesus actually said, it's an unfortunate translation choice. It's based upon actually a, a, a specific word from the Latin Vulgate, which was a Latin Roman Catholic translation of scripture that uses the Latin word mansions in this point. But it doesn't mean what mansions mean. So you attach the English word mansions and people end up with an imagination of what Jesus is actually describing. And this has come down into modern Christian culture. Not every Christian believes this, but far too many do, that what Jesus is promising or what he's describing to his disciples is, hey, you guys may not have it so good here and now, but wait till you get to heaven. I've built mansions for each one of you. And there are believers that anticipate that when they get to heaven that their life for all of eternity will be that here's your block your street in heaven your neighborhood and here's your mansion as if you will need a mansion in heaven i mean what do you what do you have a house for now why do you have a house i mean there are a lot of people in our culture now that our society that are homeless but why do you have a house? Have a house in order 
to, you need it. You need the shelter from the rain. You need the shelter from the sun. You need the shelter from the wind. It's a place to eat. It's a place to sleep. It's a place to enjoy the company of your family. And all of those things are going to be different in eternity. Every single one of them, with the maybe the lone exception of the fellowship with your family. But it won't be your natural family, then it'll be your spiritual family. But other than that, you're not going to need a place to sleep in heaven, are you? How many naps are you going to be taking in heaven? You're not going to take naps. You're not going to sleep. You're going to be like the Lord who never sleeps. You won't be the Lord, but you will be very much like him in a glorified body that has no weaknesses. I take naps because I get worn down and I need the rest. I'll never be worn down once my glorified body is given to me. So he is not actually promising that you're going to live in a mansion. What he's promising is he is providing a place for you in heaven. And so because of the mansion concept, there's, I've even heard preachers describe this, believe me, I'm not making this up, that the idea of, look, in the original week of creation, it took Jesus six days to make everything that he made in the universe. How long has it been since he promised that he was going to prepare a mansion for you? 2,000 years. That means the carpenter Jesus, but now the glorified carpenter, has been working on mansions for 2,000 years. How great are they going to be? You know, it's looking at high-level spiritual realities and, and kind of like imprinting a natural perspective on them. Like my good friend in the Lord years and years and years ago, who was convinced that heaven was going to be different for each individual. He was, he was a believer. He loved the Lord, but he believed, he was convinced that heaven was going to be whatever you most enjoyed in this present world. So he was a surfer. He enjoyed surfing. He really believed that his heaven was going to be the perfect beach with the perfect waves always rolling in, and he was going to surf for eternity. I, I tried to convince him otherwise and failed. It was like that's what he had locked his hopes and dreams of eternity into. The point being, what he's missing is it's going to be better than that, greater than that, not less than that. Yeah, and Tim, you can come and start getting ready. So what is he promising? I am going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to ensure that you have a permanent spot, a permanent place in heaven. It's not focused on where you're going to sleep at night in heaven. It's focused on will you have a place before the throne or will you not belong there? And the moment of his arrival is the moment where your place in heaven was ultimately assured and guaranteed. Because he arrived back in heaven, you who are saved by him and belong to him and are owned by him have the guarantee of a permanent, eternal place in heaven. Now, just before we um, end and, and go into worship, let me read these accompanying two passages that briefly describe what I'm describing. Uh, John 13. I'll just read these without much explanation. John 13, 33. Little children, Jesus speaking to the disciples, yet a little while I am with you and you will seek me and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will, and I, I just want to put the emphasis on the word will, the certainty of this amazing promise of Jesus that is not commonly considered a promise, but it is. Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And then the final passage uh, over in the book of Hebrews chapter six, 
And I'll read Hebrews 6, verses 19 and 20. We have this, and this is the assurance of God's absolute trustworthiness in all that he declares. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone, that's in his ascension, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The emphasis here that I want to make is on the word forerunner. Where Jesus went, he went as a forerunner to us. You know what a forerunner is and how a forerunner folk, uh, um, functions. A forerunner goes ahead of a larger group in order to, in a sense, mark the way for the larger group to be able to follow. Jesus entered into heaven as our forerunner in order to assure and ensure our eternal place in his presence in heaven. Let's go to the Lord.